0: For Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, I'm Nick Hennon, and this is SciVibe.
1: The risks from climate change are determined really to a large extent by the conditions society is in. Basically, how vulnerable we are to climate change. Science. Technology. Scientific discovery.
0: This is SciVibe. Today, we're going to talk about the science of climate change, and uh, we're doing so on a special version of this SciVibe, as it's an AMA style. We're taking questions from social media on the topic. It's going to be a lot of fun. Let's get started. We have a special guest today, Brian O'Neill, who is a chief scientist at PNNL and the lead author on the IPCC report, which is making headlines this week as it explores the latest findings on climate change, what risks we face, and what Earth's future could look like Brian. Welcome to SciVibe.
1: Thanks, Nick. Happy to be here today.
0: I'm pleased to have you on the show. Tell me, um, is there anything about the report you'd like to emphasize?
1: Yeah, there is. I think a main message from this report, one of my key takeaways, is that the risks from climate change are determined, really, to a large extent, by the condition society is in. Basically, how vulnerable we are to climate change, and Therefore, it's, it's really an underappreciated way that we can reduce those risks. We can do that uh, by the more well-known, well-appreciated ways, of course, of reducing emissions, which will limit the warming that occurs, risks that we're exposed to. We can also do specific climate adaptations, uh, building coastal defenses against sea level rise, things like that. But it's, I think it's underappreciated that we can also be reducing those risks just as much by improving lives and improving living conditions around the world. Because those things play a really critical role in how severe climate change impacts might get.
0: Right. You know, it seems like we have many societal dials we can turn. Building better infrastructure, decarbonizing various sectors that shape our future for better or worse. Is there a dial we haven't touched, an effort not yet embraced that you think we could spend more time on?
1: I think that uh, the one we could spend more time on is on paying more attention and more explicitly recognizing that our development pathway here on living conditions and the well-being of people is a climate dial. And we're much more familiar with we can reduce emissions, and we can, and that's important. And we can adapt to climate change impacts, and we can, and that's important too. I think it's it's just less widely recognized and less well appreciated that by improving lives and living conditions around the world, that can play just as great of a role, some, sometimes a bigger role uh, than than these other dials. It makes. It makes us, you know, whether it's your own household, whether it's the, the community you live in, the country, makes us less vulnerable, more resilient, gives us more options to deal with climate change. And that, that is going to be really a, a, an equally important factor to determining how big the impacts are in the future compared to exactly how much warming we get or what specific climate adaptation strategies we, we take.
0: Wow, that's certainly significant. Let's move to our guest questions. This one is coming in submitted from Tobias. And Tobias asks, when can we expect to begin to see world-altering effects of climate change?
1: Good question. And I'm going to key into the wording here on on world-altering climate effects. Um, I'm going to take that to mean really severe impacts, uh, pervasive global not, not just something that's that's noticeable, problematic, but but ultimately manageable. We spent a lot of time, a lot of effort in the report identifying risks that had the potential to become severe, and what it would take, what what conditions of warming vulnerability uh, would actually lead to impacts becoming severe. Um, and what we found was for you know let's call them world-altering types of risks, those you know pervasive, even global, large magnitude. Typically we find that those are projected to occur if we have high warming, right? So really a, a fairly large amount of warming, so four degrees Celsius or more. And if society is also really vulnerable to climate change or we don't, we don't have much capacity to adapt. And those conditions in the future scenarios that are developed to use in climate change research uh, those conditions occur, um, if, if they ever do, uh, toward the end of the century, right? And I say if, if they ever do, because, you know, this is largely our choice. If, if we reduce emissions uh, fast enough and far enough, we won't reach four degrees of, of warming. And if we prioritize development and well-being, we won't be in a state where society is really highly vulnerable to climate change, but it could happen. And under those conditions, uh, then we see these, these kinds of world altering impacts.
0: Thank you. Another question comes from Liz in New York city, and she would like to know, what is the likelihood of a Mad Max situation in the future? Have you seen the film? If you've seen the film, I'm sure you have, have you?
1: I I have seen the first one.
0: Okay. I think that's all you need. Yeah.
1: Yes, I, I have the picture in mind. It's been a while, but I, I remember the, the vision of the future, right? So this is societal collapse, um, right?
0: Lawless, yeah, pretty much. Um, and so she she wants to know, what's the likelihood of this?
1: Low. And, you know, first, you know, it's, it's important that, to realize that when we're talking about climate change, we're not talking about a threat to earth, for example, the functioning of, of the planet itself. I'm not exactly sure what that would mean, but maybe something like, you know, extinguishing all life on earth, you know, that's, that's just not in the cards. And as far as I'm concerned, and, and I, I would say as far as this report is concerned, a Mad Max future is, is also not in the cards. And by that, I mean, climate change destroying civilization. Now, I think, you know, you, you can find a few scientists out there who can imagine ways um, that that could happen. But this report, um, I think, reflects the fact that we don't have studies in the scientific literature on the impacts of climate change that point to any real possibility of destroying civilization. You know, I mean, personally, I don't know of any paper that models future society and climate and and how they affect each other and that what comes out of the model is civilization collapses. Um, I don't know of any. And of course, you know, the models could be wrong. Uh, Some of the science could be wrong. But then it's, it's really important to understand that if we are talking about collapse of civilization, then what we're talking about is speculation. And if you think climate change is going to end civilization, you're speculating. And you might be right, but that's not what we have in the scientific literature at the moment. You know, the... The, the kinds of things that we're looking at for, just to go back for a second to, to the world-altering impacts, just as a, a couple of, of examples, heat-related deaths. We had to, to make a decision in the report on what's, what is severe, what, what would we call a severe outcome for, for heat-related deaths. We decided, well, let's measure it by recent episodes where we've had a a sharp increase in death rates. So we'll take COVID and the COVID impact on global death rates uh, averaged over the world and and over the years has a, a particular value. And so we said, all right, well, let's look at all the projections for future deaths due to extreme heat. And if they get above the level that we see today from COVID, we'll call that severe. And we do see projections that are that high. Uh, but we see them, as, as I said before, if, if we have a lot of warming and, and we're highly vulnerable to it. Same thing for impacts on our economies, global economy or, or regional economies. And we see there are projections, on, again, under high warming and, and vulnerability, that climate could reduce global economic output by 10 to 20 percent relative to what it would be without, without climate change. And that's larger and the impact that we saw in the global recession in 2008, and the effect of COVID on the economy. So that, you know, gives you a sense of what are we talking about? Something somewhat worse than that, sustained over time, but that's what we're talking about, right? And that so that's not Mad Max. It's not pleasant, right. uh, but it's, it's not a Mad Max world.
0: Well, that's certainly good to hear. From Julia in Washington, in our lifetime, how much can we expect to see the sea continue to rise? What amount of landmass will we lose? Will continents shrink in a significant way?
1: Well, for sea level rise projections, so those were produced and assessed in the first installment of the IPCC report, which came out about six months ago. And in that report, climate change and and sea level rise uh, scientists uh, anticipated sea level rise over the course of this century, so so toward the end of the century, of about half a meter to a meter globally. So that's about one and a half to three feet, depending on greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so if we make really rapid reductions in emissions over the next few decades, um, bring them down to zero globally by mid- mid-century, we'll end up closer to the one and a half feet. And if we follow a really high emissions path, we can end up closer to three. So that's, you know, 60 to 80 years from now. So if you're 20 years old or so now, you'll you'll likely live that long uh, to, to see where it turns out. Now, there is some possibility that can't be ruled out that it could be higher than that one and a half to three feet range, maybe closer to five or six feet by 2100. Because there are some processes, especially with ice sheets and fast they might break up and melt that aren't well understood. So we could get surprised, but, but that outcome's not, not part of the likely range. And, and just to address what, what will that do to, to the continents to get some sense of, of how that will affect us. That'll have important effects, but it's not, it's not enough to substantially change the shape of the continents. If you look at a globe at the end of the century, you're gonna recognize everything. The amount of sea level rise and the amount of inundation uh, will vary by location because there's other processes that affect rising or sinking of, of the coast in, in a particular area. But generally speaking, that amount of sea level rise is, is not gonna shrink continents significantly. But it will mean that there'll be still plenty of areas that will be inundated um, and shore areas that are, are currently you know packed with people and buildings and infrastructure. So it's going to be a problem but, but it's not going to fundamentally reshape the continents.
0: Do you think there's a, this is a question for me is there a danger you think sometimes in these findings being misinterpreted by the public, by younger people by all people?
1: You mean findings being misinterpreted as being catastrophic or
0: Or doomsday, right.
1: Yeah. I think there is, and I think that we have seen some of that. I think there are plenty of people out there who hear and read about the science on climate change and, and have a, a good grasp of, of what it means. I think there has been a, a tendency in some cases for some parts of, of the public, of of possibly the, the policy discussion. Uh, to lock in on, on the possibility for real catastrophe and doom. And that is not something that is shared by the overwhelming majority of the scientific community. It's serious. It's an important problem. Uh, It's one that if we don't address, it will get worse and it will continue to get worse. And and maybe well down the line, past this century, uh, we could run into some sort of society altering um, uh, consequences. But otherwise, the, the impacts that we're looking at are not ones about real all out catastrophe and doom and ending civilization.
0: It's a bit of hope, isn't it? It,
1: yes, yes, um, it, exactly. And, and, and the hope is there and that there is something we can do about it. Now, there are things that are locked in and there are things that are irreversible. We're going to see sea level rise in the future, uh, no matter what. That's going to continue for, for thousands of years. We can still have a big impact on how fast uh, it, it rises and how high it eventually rises but that's irreversible. We've had some impacts on, on ecosystems that are already pretty dire. Coral reefs are, are really heavily impacted. Bleaching and projections are that they're, a large percentage of them are unlikely to survive, even if we can hold warming to, to one and a half degrees uh, Celsius in, in the end. Um, it's not necessarily a rosy picture, but it is, it is also, uh, not, at least for, for human society as a whole, one of, of catastrophe uh, and doom.
0: It's um, a relief, frankly. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, and, you know, and it's, it's, it's a difficult message because it's why I you know, always want to pair this with saying this doesn't mean that climate change is not a problem. That's not the message. And I imagine that's the way it could be interpreted. It's like, shoo, okay, nothing to worry about. Wow, okay, so now I don't have to worry about that anymore. And that's not the issue. But I think it's also, it's kind of um, crippling as well to just shrug your shoulders and say we're doomed.
0: Yes, I agree, and I get that. Yes, yes. So we're going to go to Carolyn, and she says, how do the receding poles affect climate?
1: I'm assuming this question is about ice, ice caps at the, at the poles in the Arctic, for example, at the North pole, the, the ice cap is thinning and receding more and more during, uh, summer months in particular. And the effect that has on climate is that it accelerates the warming, uh, closer to the poles compared to the equator because there's a feedback that comes into play between climate and the ice cover. So climate warms because we've added greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, and then that warming climate melts some of the Arctic ice cap, and that exposes more of the Arctic ocean surface. And since the ocean is darker, absorbs more sunlight than the the really reflective ice, it, it heats up more than it would have if it were covered by ice. Um, and that heats up the atmosphere. And, and this increased warming melts more ice, which produces more warming and so on. Um, so that's a, a positive feedback, as, as they call it, that, that amplifies warming in that region. It is, it is important to realize that this is a well-known feedback and it's already incorporated in, in really all climate models, any climate model that you'll see in, a, in an IPCC report. And so it's included in our projections of how much uh, the world and the Arctic may warm in the future. It's not a runaway feedback that that goes out of control and heats the Earth endlessly. Um, and so and and, and so you shouldn't be thinking that. Well, I heard about these climate projections, and maybe it'll read uh, will we'll warm three degrees, uh, but what about that? ice feedback that's going to amplify things, um, maybe we'll get a whole lot more, and that's not the case. That three-degree projection that you might be looking at already includes this particular dynamic.
0: Okay, that's good to know. From Art Dracula in California, how long would it take to see improvement in climate change once positive changes are made?
1: This is interesting uh yeah it 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 may sound strange, but first we we would have to define what's improvement and if we mean by improvement reducing global average temperature right we've we've had about a little bit more than one degree c of of warming so far um, and we're continuing on a on an upward t- trajectory and so if improvement is you know how how long would it take to 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 start bringing that down? that's really tough and we can't do it right now. And the reason is that the effect of every ton of carbon dioxide, the the principal greenhouse gas that we emit into the atmosphere, um, is an essentially permanent increment in warming. So each time we add carbon, we introduce more warming. And permanent means on the time scale of, you know, let's say thousands of years at least. So basically human-caused warming never decreases unless we ourselves do something active to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. If we just cut our emissions to zero, then the most that happens is temperature stays about constant, It, it it stops increasing. And and so r- right now, we, we don't have the, the technology to remove CO2 from the atmosphere in large quantities to, to really make a difference. So we can't decrease the amount of, of warming we experience. We may be able to do that in the future. Lots of work, lots of thinking on, on different ways to do that. Um, and that would be a really important uh, tool to have, have available uh, in the future. Um, but but right now, we we can't, we can't reduce it. You know, I would add, though, that Let's not be so hard on ourselves in seeing some improvement from our actions, right? Improvement can mean just slowing down the increase in warming significantly. And that we can do. And in two or three decades, if we started seriously now on emissions reductions, we could see the difference that that would make to the global average temperature uh, in two or three decades. And it, it doesn't happen right away because carbon dioxide and its effect on uh, global average temperature uh, happens slowly, and there's a lot of inertia in the system, so a lot of our warming is, is kind of built in from previous emissions. Um, and, but we, we will be able to see it in a couple decades. And we can reduce other greenhouse gas gases like methane, which, which also uh, contributes, importantly, to warming. much shorter-lived gas. And therefore, when you reduce those emissions, you can see an effect on on the warming rate much more quickly. So on the order of 10 or 20 years. Um, So there is there is some good news about being able to make a difference uh, in the relatively near term.
0: That's great. What core changes must occur at the national and global scale to avoid the worst climate change consequences?
1: Well, there are three things uh, we have to do to avoid climate risks. Um, At all scales, local, country, global. One is reducing emissions to limit warming in the future. The second is to develop the capacity to adapt to the changes that we experience. And the third one, which I've emphasized before, is investing in improving lives and living conditions. To reduce our vulnerability. I think those are the three main categories of, of responses.
0: From David in California, how can individuals make the most impact without significant funding?
1: Yeah, this is this is a good question, and there's there's a couple sides to this. Um, there are things that we do in our everyday lives that matter for sure, and and so that that does make a difference. At the same time, Climate change is a large problem that really ultimately requ- requires um, systemic change, and that, that really has to come about through the political process. The, you know, on the emissions reduction side, the kind of thing that, that is necessary, as we've said, to, to stop warming, not even to decrease it, but just to stop it from increasing, is to reduce global emissions to zero. And emissions from fossil fuel burning are pervasive in every part of our lives. So this is an enormous task. And there, there isn't a way for a single individual through their own actions to reduce global emissions to zero. There isn't even a way a single country can do that. It's, it's a global effort. So you can do things, you can save energy in your home and, and so on. But ultimately, we need electricity to be produced in a different way from renewables rather than fossil fuel. We need transportation systems that don't run on gasoline. And these are, these are big things. So an important thing to do is to just to be aware of what your elected officials' stances are on, on this issue and take that into account when you vote. And I say that, you know, whatever your view is. Is is just make it part of your list of issues that that you pay attention to, but also in in your own life there there's a lot that you can do that that does matter that does count um, by by taking climate change into account in the choices that you make uh, in your everyday life, um, including as a, as a consumer when when you buy appliances is to take into account well how energy efficient is this if I'm you know, using uh, less energy, and that energy is produced with fossil fuels, I am gonna be contributing to reductions in emissions. I am also gonna be contributing to the effort by producers to develop more and more efficient appliances. And so having people buy those is, is an important component of that. Same thing when you buy a, a car, it's a major purchase, is to think about how efficient is it? What's its uh, carbon emissions gonna be? Even Consider an electric vehicle um, if it's within your budget. Those, those costs are coming down. I'm, I'm sure they'll come down more. Um, you can walk or bike or, or take public transportation more and, and just avoid using a car as much. Something that's gotten a lot of attention more recently is you know, if it fits your lifestyle, you can eat less meat, particularly beef, which involves more greenhouse gases in its, in its production. Um, but to come back to our, our, our theme uh, from earlier is I, I would also say that if you are interested in and, and involved in education issues or health or poverty issues or improving governance around the world, you are contributing to improving living conditions and reducing people's vulnerability to all kinds of things, including climate change. So that's, that's important as well.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the the small steps mean a lot. You might not think they do, but they do, right? I mean, around 2005, I started washing my clothes in only cold water. And do they get clean? Yes, they do. Um, Take shorter showers, time your showers, you know, uh, reduce your heat, um, different things, you know, and you just pick those out and and do what you can and be involved in the discourse as well. Um, And you're doing your part, aren't you?
1: You are. And and there's, there's several dimensions to it. One is just, it adds up across many people, right? It's a, it's small relative to the task of reducing global emissions. It's it's small what one, one person can do. But of course, the goal isn't to have one person reduce global emissions. It's to have lots of people do it. And you can't do that unless one person does and the next and the next. So they do add up. And the second thing is, as you say, is that... This can rub off on other people just by talking about it, and that can expand the number of people. So it's not just necessarily kind of the numbers if you add up the, the amount of carbon that you personally save. That can be multiplied by behavior that, that other people see. If you can afford it and you're in the position to do so, that it's worth considering, even if it's paying some more, Buying things like whether it's an an electric vehicle or a a more efficient appliance or or an electric appliance instead of a gas one. Because an, an additional benefit is that the more of those kinds of new technologies that are produced, the better producers get at producing them. That's how costs come down. And so an important dynamic in bringing costs down depends on so-called early adopters, right? People who are willing to go out there and it does cost more and not everybody can do it. And electric vehicles range might not be good enough for everybody, but for the people who it is good enough for, that's really important because it sort of pulls the industry along and helps them get the experience to, to bring those costs
0: down. Yeah, that's a great point. This has been so exciting and fun, and I really appreciate you taking time to, to be on the show.
1: Well, thanks, Nick. It's been my pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to SciVibe. We're dedicated to sharing the excitement of discovery. If you had an aha moment while listening to SciVibe, please share and subscribe.